This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. The world is starving for love. A priest was asked, what do you do all day? He said, I sit and listen to the sins of people who come to me because they are starving for the grace of God. Gordon MacDonald was doing research for a book. He began attending uh, Alcoholics Anonymous AA meetings in New York City. And he wrote about one meeting where a girl came in. Her name was Kathy, age 35. He said at 21, Kathy must have been Hollywood beautiful. But now the drug use and the hardness of life had taken its toll on her. She spoke up and began to share. She said, I'd lived in five states in the last 18 months. I've slept under bridges. I've lost all my relationships. I don't know what to do. And she began to cry. And just then, a large, heavyset woman pulled her clothes, hugged her in, and said, honey, you're going to be okay. You're with us now. Just keep coming back. People are starved for the love and grace of God. Would Kathy have gotten that response in the church? I sure hope so. Honey, you're going to be okay. You're with us now. Just keep coming back. The church is meant to be a repository for God's love, like a fountain from which the world can come and drink. Are we like this? Are you like this? Last few weeks we've been talking about what it means to be a gospel community. A lot of things in this last year have been conspiring to pull us apart. And what does it mean to come back together? What does it mean to be remembered into the body of Christ? And the commentators all point out the similarities between what Paul is doing here in Romans 12 and what he does in another one of his letters, 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 12 and 13, and, and in Romans 12, they actually have the same train of thought, the same flow of logic. Paul goes immediately from a description about uh, the manifold and varied gifts that exist within the body of Christ, then right next comes a description and a discussion about love. In other words, Paul is saying we are one body, unity, with many members, diversity, and then the only way to hold this together, get together, to hold together this unity and diversity is with love. And so that's what we have in our passage today. Paul talks about the love that acts as a glue to hold the community of faith together. But then he also acts or talks about how love is what we as the church have to offer to our neighbors, have to offer to our city, have to offer to the world. And we were talking about this earlier this week. Pastor Brian said, how in the world are you going to talk about all this in this passage in 30 minutes? And my answer is, I have no idea. I don't know if we're going to be able to do it all, but we'll give it a try this morning. All right, so first let's talk about the love that Paul is saying should exist within the community. Love is the glue that will keep this community of faith together. Verse 9 begins, let love be genuine. And right here you have the theme for all that's to come after. In fact, in Greek, there's actually no verb here. It just says, the love genuine. It's like a title to the whole section. And everything else is kind of a bullet point, elucidating or illuminating uh, what he means here. The love genuine. And, and the word that Paul uses for love is the word agape. There's four main words 
For love in Greek, each has a slightly different emphasis. Agape carries with it the sense of committed love or sacrificial love. In fact, so far in Paul's letter to the Romans, he's used agape to describe the kind of love that God has for us, for his people. Romans 5.8 says that it's agape love that Christ demonstrated on the cross. Romans 5.5, it's agape love that the Holy Spirit pours into our hearts. In Romans 8, it's agape love is that love which refuses to let us go, which we're going to sing about as we prepare for the Lord's Supper here in a moment. Now Paul says this kind of love, the love that God has shown to us in holding us tight despite our failures, despite our rebellions, the sacrificial love that God has shown in staring down death and judgment for us on the cross. Now this kind of love is the kind of love that should begin to permeate among us, should characterize our relationships with one another. So this is no sappy hallmark slogan for Paul. Agape love is what God has shown in redeeming us, dying for us, welcoming us to his table to be with him forever and ever. That's the kind of love that's supposed to exist here. But what about the adjective? And Paul puts next to agape, next to love. He says genuine. Let love be genuine. The Greek word is literally unhypocritical. A hypocrite or hypocrite or something. I can't know how to say it in Greek, but uh, a hypocrite in Greek was a play actor, someone who performs, someone who performed usually behind a mask. And Paul is saying that with real love, all disguises are meant to be cast aside. Real love should be without pretense, without hypocrisy. The truth is we all struggle to embody this in some way or another. I mean, on the one hand, we can conjure up what you might call a, a phony kind of love, a polite, nice, sweet on the outside, but on the inside, despising others, harboring uh, bitterness, looking down on others. Within any church, a culture of niceness can develop in which a pleasant veneer masks ugly things like envy and gossip and prejudice. That's one way to go wrong for our love not to be genuine. But on the other hand, the flip side can also be true. We can be authentic but authentically unloving. In other words, right, you think, all right, well, uh, you know, I don't love these people so much, so I'm not going to pretend as if I do. I, I don't want to have any uh, pretense. I don't want to be a hypocrite. So I'll just be, you know, I'll act however I feel in that moment, all in the name of authenticity. You might be sincere, but you might be sincerely a jerk, right? That's also a possibility. And my friend Ray Kanata, Pastor Ray Kanata, puts it this way. He says, the first problem looks like love, but it's not real. The second problem looks real, but it's not love. Paul says we need a genuine love. So what's the solution then? How do we do that? How do we show that kind of love? And the solution is loving while repenting. You see, at the heart of the Christian story is Jesus Christ moving toward us when we were unlovely. Romans 5.8 puts it this way, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the center of the Christian story. And so then we're intended to dwell upon this as God's people, to preach about this, to sing about this, to remind each other of this over and over and over again. Christ loved us when we were unlovely. And as we do that, as we repeat this, as we are refreshed in this experience of God's love for us, then it's meant to shape us in the way that we move toward and the way that we love 
one another. And when we fail to love one another, as we will, we go right back to the cross again where we find God's forgiveness and love. This gives us the freedom to repent, the freedom to pick ourselves uh, back up and then move toward each other again in love. Genuine love. Love without hypocrisy. That's what Paul is describing for the church. Now, what does that look like? Remember I said that's kind of a header. The rest is sort of bullet points uh, illuminating this. Paul does give some specifics, and I'm going to run through them, and I'm going to be as, as quick as I can as we move through them this morning. The first thing he says, what is genuine love? He says it's got to be love with truth. It's got to be love with truth. Verse 9, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Now, it might seem strange to kick off exhorting people to love by telling them what to abhor, but in a cracked world, we can't love rightly without hating rightly. That is, we need to be horrified by what God calls evil and driven to hold fast, to glue ourselves to what God calls good. Now, the challenging part of this is when we like someone, when we care for somebody, it can be hard at times to distinguish the bad from the good about them or in their life. You know, we all sort of get into sort of a Sheryl Crow, you know, kind of mindset, right? If it makes you happy, well, it can't be bad, right? But when we do that, right, when we judge by good feelings, we start to define love as that which promotes emotional happiness in the other. And the problem with that definition is if that's what we take, right, if love is just what brings emotional happiness to the other, the problem with that is then we don't have a category for tough love, for admonishing, for rebuking, for confronting, because it might upset them. But real love, genuine love, abhors what harms the beloved. And if you've ever loved anyone who struggled with addiction, you know what this is like. You hate that which is destroying their life. Real love says, I want the best for the beloved, which might mean then confronting. It might mean that hard conversation. Genuine love is a discerning love. It's love with truth. But then secondly, Paul says, uh, genuine love is love with affection. Verse 10, love one another with brotherly affection. And the Greek word there is Philadelphia, brotherly love. The love that we're to show one another in the church is the kind of love that the rest of the world usually reserves only for family, for close family. This is one reason, by the way, why church membership and taking vows to one another is a big deal, because what we're saying when we receive new members in our church like we will next month is we're saying we're family. We belong to each other. And so, as that is the case, we're to show warmth and affection to each other like family. And also like family, by the way, we don't have to perform for each other. Y'all know this, right? You don't have to, uh, you, you do have to put up with a lot to be part of a family, right? I mean, think of the, you know, as you start to, holidays are coming, right? Think of these crazy conversations you're going to have to deal with around the Thanksgiving table, probably at your family's house, right? Think of the strange behaviors you have to put up with. Uh, for example, at uh, the family reunions or whatever you might have had to do this summer. Think of the offenses that you'll be called upon to overlook, the forgiveness that you'll need to extend in order to remain a family. Same thing here. We're called to that kind of family love, tender affection, brotherly love. Thirdly, genuine love, Paul says, is love with respect. Verse 10 
the end of it says, outdo one another in showing honor. C.S. Lewis wrote this, and I think we have the words on the screen there. He wrote this. He said, it may be possible for each to think too much of his own glory thereafter, but it's hardly possible for him to think too often or too deeply about the glory of his neighbor. Listen to this. He goes on. He says, there are no ordinary people. Think about this as you're sitting around people this morning. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your neighbor is the holiest object presented to your senses. Paul says with that in mind, we are to outdo one another in showing honor. Now, typically, what do we outdo one another in? We typically outdo one another in trying to gain recognition for ourselves, right? We uh, compete with one another for people to notice us for our own recognition. But Paul says, if you're going to compete, compete in the way that you show honor to others. Outdo one another to honor people that are made in God's image, who've been redeemed by Jesus' blood. Love with respect. But then he says, this genuine love is love with zeal. Verse 11, do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. I think it was Bono who said, uh, I can never be cool because I'm Irish and the Irish are passionate. You know, what is cool, right? By definition, to be cool is to be detached, to be somewhat aloof, to be rather unaffected, right? That's what it means to be cool. But Paul here is saying that's not the kind of commitment to each other that we are called to. There's a spiritual fervor that we're to have in our relationship with the Lord, but also an energy that we are to uh, lean into as we care for and love one another. Are you willing to give up being cool in order to love with zeal? Every time I think about that concept, I think about uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s uh, letter uh, from Birmingham jail. He uh, used this expression in there. He called it being an extremist for love. And he was writing in response to those who had criticized him for moving too boldly or too quickly in the struggle for civil rights. He wrote this. He said, Though I was initially disappointed at being categorized as an extremist, I continued to think about the matter. I gradually gained a measure of satisfaction from the label. Was not Jesus an extremist for love? Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Was not Amos an extremist for justice? Let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Was not Paul an extremist for the Christian gospel? I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Was not Martin Luther an extremist? Here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, so help me God. And King goes on to say, we're all extremists for something. Let us be extremists for love. Fifthly, Paul says, this genuine love we're to have amongst one another, for one another, is a love that is with patience. Verse 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And the way that verse ties together, I think, is that Paul knows that loving people like this, doing life in community like this, this call to this selfless, sacrificial, agape love is going to be very difficult. And so in order to do it, in order to keep at it, you've got to have a vision for the future. That's why Paul says rejoice in hope. 
It's knowing that this is where things are headed, that the heavenly city, the kingdom of God, is going to be composed of this kind of love. And as we exhibit this toward one another now, we're actually embodying a picture, a window into the future kingdom. And he says, also, you've got to be realistic. You can't just rejoice in the future, but you've also got to have a realistic understanding of what the now is going to be. And therefore, he says, be patient in tribulation. And then what's the fuel, what's the mechanism that's going to get us through from this patient tribulation now to the hope of the future kingdom? He says, you've got to be constant in prayer. We need to love with patience. He goes on, verse 13, he says, we need to love with generosity. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. And the reality is, real love is always going to cost you something. Real love is all, there's no, no way that you can love without it costing you in some way. It will cost you time as you invest in the lives of other people. It will cost you your space, right? What is hospitality but welcoming others in close, which means, you know, literally, in many cases, using your home, using your space, using your apartment to have people over. But it's also letting them into your life, which will cost you emotional space, which will cost you relational space. But it also costs you financially, because when you really love people and they hit a hard time, real love seeks to meet a need. It seeks to, to provide where there's lack. It will always cost you something. And notice Paul says that we are to seek this. Seek to show hospitality. That is, don't just wait for an opportunity to come and hit you over the head, but chase opportunities to love other people. Seek out new people. Don't just invite the same old friends to lunch after church, but be looking for somebody new. Have on your radar just generally through life for people who are lonely, people who are hurting, people who God might bring across your path. Love with generosity. And then lastly here, Paul says we need to love toward harmony. Verse 16 says, we are to live in harmony with one another. Now, how do you do that? Well, that could be a whole sermon all by itself because Paul elucidates this a little bit, 14, 15, 16. This is all a picture of what living in harmony with each other looks like. It involves, first of all, a commitment uh, to have goodwill toward one another, to believe the best about one another, to care for one another above even your own needs. Verse 14 says, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. That's a commitment to goodwill. It also involves a deep sympathy, entering into the experience of others who are in community with you. Verse 15 says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. A deep sympathy. It also means a posture of humility. Verse 16, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. To live toward harmony it means goodwill. It means sympathy. It means humility. Love, the genuine love Paul is describing. That's the glue that's meant to hold us together as a community. But this love is also what we have to offer to the community around us, to our neighbors, to our friends, to our classmates, to the world. Love is our witness to the world. And I'll tell you, I think this has always been the case. I think this is what the church has always had to offer to the world around it in any age, no matter the place. But I think in our present moment, the love that Paul is talking about here, if embodied in us, will completely stand out as unique. 
in our culture. You see, we live in a culture that demands a pound of flesh, doesn't it? In our culture, it says error has no rights. In our culture, it urges us to crush our ideological opponents. But Paul says, verse 17, repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. So that means if they give you malice, no malice in return. If they heap on insults, no insults in return. If they bring harm and hatred, it means no repaying harm and hatred. Let no one repay evil for evil. And in the last verse of the whole passage, Paul really sums this up. Verse 21, he says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And with just a few moments we have left, I want to think about that approach to engaging the world around us. Paul says first, do not be overcome by evil. And that's very difficult, isn't it? Because from the time we're little kids, we're sort of immersed in this idea of tit for tat. The desire of getting even is a part of our very makeup. Revenge makes for the plot of some of our greatest movies. You know, The Godfather, Braveheart, Revenge of the Nerds. <laughs> that one's maybe not in that realm of great movies. But we want people to suffer at least what they have made us suffer. But Paul tells us if that's the way we operate, if you return evil for evil, actually evil wins. If you repay evil with evil, we actually double it. We add to the tally of evil in the world. Rather than diffuse evil and suffering or interrupt the process, we enlarge it, we inflame it, we add to it. And instead, Paul calls us to become a people of love and forbearance and forgiveness. And can you imagine how much better our neighborhoods would be? People began to operate like this, repay no one evil for evil. How many marriages would be on a better track? How would our community council meetings and school board meetings be better? How would disputes among our neighbors be settled? And Paul says we have the chance, as the church of Jesus Christ, we have the chance to be the seeds of this new kind of living in our city right now. We can be an outpost of the kingdom of God. Do not be overcome by evil. And perhaps you say, all right, easier said than done. Particularly if somebody really harms me, right? We should remember here that Paul is writing to a persecuted church in Rome. So this is no ivory tower discussion. He's writing to people who are in the thick of it. How do you avoid repaying evil for evil? Well, first we have to remember who God is. And who is God? Well, he is, among other things, the just judge. Verse 19 says, Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Why? Because you can leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And so just let me ask you, I mean, this is the question of the text. Who is uh, better equipped to deal out judgment when wrong has been done? You or God? answer is God, of course. Leave it to the wrath of God. And that doesn't mean sweeping things under the rug. It doesn't mean ignoring wrongs done or pain inflicted, but it does mean trusting that you don't have to even the score because God sees and knows and will make things right. We need to remember who God is. He is the just judge. But then secondly, we need to remember who we are and who are you 
You're a sinner in need of mercy, same as me. You're a sinner in need of mercy. And there's a place in Matthew chapter 18 where Jesus tells the story of a man who has been forgiven this enormous debt by the king, something he never could have paid off in his lifetime. But the king in his grace, he forgives the debt of this man. But as the man goes free, he uh, doesn't take any time at all before he finds another guy who owes him a sum of money. And that debtor pleads for mercy, but the man is having none of it, and he has that man, that debtor, thrown in jail. The king hears of this, and, and he's absolutely uh, mystified. He can't believe it. He says, I forgave you this great debt, but you can't bring yourself to forgive the others who are in debt to you? And he says, should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? Jesus is telling that story to remind us of who we are. If you're a Christian, you're a sinner who's been shown great mercy by the king, which should then inform the way we deal with others who may be in our debt. But it's also important to remember in answering that question, that who are you question, that verse 19 begins with the word beloved. That's how God thinks of you, as his beloved Remember, it's beloved, never avenge yourself. In Jesus, God has set his favor upon you. And the more that you believe that, the less you'll be motivated by revenge. Because while the slights and the being passed over and the rejection and the the disrespect, while those things will still hurt, they don't have to destroy you. Because you have the love of the most important person in the universe set on you. And no one can take that away. Beloved. Never avenge yourself. So Paul says, do not be overcome by evil. But then the second part of that is overcome evil with good. Overcome evil with good. And the word overcome is a a military term. It means to overrun, to overtake, to overwhelm. Which gives us the sense then that the church is meant to be on the offensive in this respect. We're not retreating. We're not hunkering down. But we're moving out into the world to defeat the enemy with love and good deeds. Verse 20, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. We go on the offensive with food and drink and hospitality and good deeds. And Paul says, this will heap burning coals on his head. Again, this is military language, right? When you siege a castle, if you're going to be successful, most likely you're going to need catapults, something to throw over the walls to rain down on the enemy, stones and bricks and hot coals and logs from the fire. And Paul says that's how the kingdom advances, not with literal projectiles, but with food and drink and kindness and deeds of love lobbed out into the world, even toward your enemies. One of the songs that we sing here regularly, one of the hymns goes like this. Lead on, O King Eternal, till sin's fierce war shall cease and holiness shall whisper the sweet amen of peace. Listen to this. For not with swords loud clashing, nor roll of stirring drums, with deeds of love and mercy, the heavenly kingdom comes. The posture of the church toward the world is not revenge but love, even love toward your enemies, even love toward those who persecute you. And when, when this gets lived out, it gets the attention of people in the world because we all know it's hard enough to love your family, to love your friends, but if anyone loves their enemy, you know something miraculous is happening. Monday 
October 2nd, 2006, so was that 15 years ago yesterday. 10.30 a.m., shots rang out in an Amish schoolhouse. 32-year-old Charles Carl Roberts had breakfast with his wife that morning. Then he drove a few miles to the Nickel Mines Amish community where he delivered milk during the week. He brought with him several guns. He burst into the schoolhouse. According to the survivors, he said, I'm angry at God and I need to punish some Christian girls to get even with him. He was angry because of the death of his firstborn daughter nine years before. As he charged into the schoolhouse, a teacher got some of the smaller children out of a side door and away to safety. That left Marion, age 13, as the oldest. She quickly assumed leadership of the younger girls. Realizing he planned to kill them, she said, shoot me first. Hoping to save the others by giving time for the police to arrive. All told, before he shot himself, Robert shot ten girls, killing Marion and four others. Some of you remember this, but the story shocked the nation. But what happened next was nothing short of miraculous. The nickel mines Amish grieved and cried and prayed. But then they extended grace and forgiveness to Charles Roberts' family. A number of us just talked and thought we should go to his funeral, one of the men said. Many of us knew the family very well, so we met at the firehouse just informally, and then we walked across the back way behind a long garage. We waited there until we saw them bring the body to the cemetery. Many of our people went up to Amy, his wife, and greeted her and the children. In fact, some of the parents who had buried their own children just a day or two before offered condolences and hugs to Amy at the gravesite. The funeral director recalled the moving moment. I was lucky enough to be at the cemetery when the Amish families of the children who had been killed came to greet Amy Roberts and offer their forgiveness. And that is something I will never forget, not ever. I knew that I was witnessing a miracle. Alfred Plummer wrote, to return evil for good is devilish, to return good for good is human, but to return good for evil is divine. And look, I know the danger in quoting a dramatic story like that. We think that that's what these passages are for, mainly for these radical, extraordinary kinds of moments. And then the temptation then in hearing that is to leave off our daily application, working this kind of stuff out into the nitty gritty of our daily lives and our families and in our neighborhoods and uh, at our workplaces and in our schools. But Paul won't let us off the hook here. In verse 18, he says this, he says, if possible, so far as it depends upon you, live peaceably with all. Some translations say, be reconciled to all. Friends, this is your calling. And this is, for most of us this morning, the most practical application that you can take with you here today. We are called to reconcile relationships wherever we can. And I love how realistic the Bible is about this, so far as it depends upon you. In other words, you don't have total control of how this turns out. But you have your part. A few years ago, I was talking with a good friend about this very verse, and he's estranged from his parents. There was a family disagreement. His parents had hurt him deeply. They wouldn't even come to his wedding. And so he wrestled with this verse because he 
had no idea how they would respond to him. It was risky to reach out. Would his kindness be wet with rejection as it had in the past? But he concluded that so far as it depends upon you meant that he needed to give it a try. And so he reached out. And in the story, it, it worked out. worked out well. It was met well. But it could have very easily gone a different way. But the call to all of us, right? The call for us, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, is to be a risk-taking reconciler as far as it depends upon you. We're going to take the Lord's Supper here in a minute. And when we do, we're reminded that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That is, he moved toward us while we were yet sinners. And then he sends us out to love like that, to be reconciling people like that. And I hope that our time together this morning will propel us forward, not just with good thoughts, but toward practical action, picking up the phone, putting pen to paper, reaching out. The world is starving for the grace and the love of God. We need it ourselves. If we're going to hold together as a community of people with different gifts, different opinions, different levels of spiritual maturity, but we also can be a repository of God's grace and love for a city that desperately needs it. More and more, New City Church, we can become a risk-taking, enemy-loving, good-doing, reconciliation-pursuing, loving church community. Let's pray that God would make us more that way even this morning. Lord God, we do pray that you would make us more like this. This is a heavy call, a lofty one. And yet we also remember that you have loved us so well in Jesus Christ. And so in response to that, in recognition of that, relishing in that, may we now go and show this love to others. We long not to be overcome by evil, but to overcome evil with good. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.